Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7, but we're on the road today. We're in Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm talking with Beth Macy, a very well-known author, and I'm at her home here. It's just a beautiful old home built in the 1920s, and I've met her dogs and just having a wonderful time. And Beth, driving up 81 today, I was thinking of that old song by Tom T. Hall. Half a pound of ground round to the time I almost starved to death in Roanoke, Virginia. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> I don't know if you ever listened to Tom. Oh, I yeah. want to hear that well, one. It's, uh, it's got Roanoke, Virginia in the title? Uh, right. It's uh, Half a Pound of Ground Round. And it's, Check it out. I think he was uh, up here looking for work because he was a radio DJ at the time. I see. Yeah, this was yeah. a big radio scene uh, back in the day. I don't know if you've ever read Ralph Barrier's book, If Trouble Don't Kill Me, but it's fantastic. <laughs> his uh, grandfather and his grandfather's twin were boys from the, literally, Holler, Virginia was the name of the little community in Carroll County they were from. And they would come to Roanoke and play. They were famous musicians at their time in the 30s and 40s. Well, Beth Macy, welcome to our show. And first thing we like to ask around these mountains, you know, is where are you from? I'm from Ohio, from a little factory town called Urbana. My mom worked in the factory when the economy was good. And when it wasn't, she'd get laid off and pick up under the table work the way the people in Factory Man did. So. Wow, so you grew up there and probably had, a, we love scandals, you know, we love uh, gossip, but I don't know if you can <laughs> <laughs> I probably don't want to share any today. Any scandals about myself? Well, yeah, well, See, I was class clown. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was too. And she was, uh, Beth was down in Abingdon at the uh, library the other day doing a great job and talking about, she has two books that, that I'm very familiar with, and many of you are familiar with Factory Man, correct? Mm -hmm. And then your latest book is True Vine, is mm -hmm. that right? Yep. So we're going to talk about that today. And you folks out there, stay tuned because you're really going to have a good time. She's really entertaining, great sense of humor. <laughs> so do you remember the first thing? Another question we like to ask, do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? Now, if you don't remember it... Uh, now, I do remember, but it's not worth talking about. It'd just be some college story that I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I did know what I was doing, and it would, it would make my stomach sick to just even lay eyes on it. So it was in college? Yeah, I was a journalism oh. major. One of the first pieces I wrote, like a feature essay, you know, like a first-person essay, was published in Seventeen Magazine when I was a college sophomore. And it was... My father had just died, and, I, and we did, hadn't gotten along very well, and I wrote a... Pretty poignant piece about um, about that. Seven, and you, it was published in Seventeen magazine. Yeah, I was nineteen at the time, so I was a little old for it. But <laughs> well, <laughs> it got published nationally, and if you got anything published in this class, you got an automatic A. But so that was pretty cool. Well, that is that's very very interesting. I've asked this many times on this show, and some folks have talked about the first poem. You know, Naomi Nye, Naomi Shiab Nye said her first poem was in second grade, and how much her teacher loved her poem. And I told her my teacher didn't like my poem in the second grade, and I didn't like her. But anyway, let's get to your books, okay? Mm -hmm. Because now. You were, but before we do that, I know you were a well-known, you wrote articles for the Roanoke newspaper. Mm -hmm. Off and on for 25 years. I moved here in 1989. I had been a reporter in Columbus, Ohio, and then in Savannah, Georgia. And then I came up to Roanoke. Um, hadn't really been anywhere. I grew up really poor. And uh, the paper editor called me up 
for an interview and I had driven down to Savannah to take that job and I stopped off at the Withville exit and I thought that was Roanoke because it said Withville and Roanoke. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that little paper wants to fly me up for an interview? Okay. And then I was pleasantly surprised that it was Roanoke. No offense to Withville. Well, no, because they have Skeeter's hot dogs in Withville. Oh. Yes, you must stop there All sometime. the things I'm learning. School right. me, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> so you came here to Roanoke and wrote for the paper and I know you wrote many interesting articles because folks around Abingdon read them, and one was Lou Crabtree. Yeah, Lou, she was, I think she had just been appointed the Poet Laureate of Virginia, and my friend Lee Smith, I had I had gone to do a story on Lee, and I was getting my graduate degree at Hollins, which is where she has a degree from, and so we really bonded, and I, I was there the week that her daddy closed his dime store in Grundy, and so I reported on that, and at the same time, Lee was coming out with her book, The Devil's Dream, and she said, you need to meet my friend Lou Crabtree. And then she told me that famous line that Lou shuffles into a little writing workshop that Lee was teaching mm-hmm. in Abingdon, uh, probably in the 80s, and has papers like spilling out everywhere, and she's wearing bedroom slippers, and... Lee says, oh, I thought she was a crackpot. And she says, uh, she reads the first line from a short story that went, Old Reller had 13 miscarriages, and she named every one of them. And that got Lee's attention. Yeah, yeah. And then she really promoted her and helped her, you know, get an editor and all that. So I went later, I went and did a story about Lou, sat on her porch in Abingdon, which everybody in Abingdon knows, on Valley Street, I think it is, and... I was with a photographer, and we were in our late 20s, I guess, and she said, you girls are awful young to be so far away from home. Aren't you scared? For sure. <laughs> and there was something... It just cracked me up. Yeah, she was certainly a character, and I know there was something about... You mentioned about she by she was rejected, or how she handled rejected, rejection and the snow. and Yeah, she got, well, she published her first book, and then she sent her second book off thinking it would be, you know, they'd want it too, and she got a rejection letter, and it was the middle of winter. I said, what'd you do, Lou? She said, I took all my clothes off, and I went outside, and I rolled in the snow. I love that. I just I thought, first of all, it's so natural, it's so primitive, and there was just something that when you <laughs> talked about that, um, you know, in your presentation down at the library, it just caught my attention. I thought, yeah. wow. I love it when people are just themselves, you know? Exactly. That's, that's when we're our best. When And it took me a while to learn that. But I'm my best when I'm writing about outsiders and underdogs because I am an outsider and an underdog. And, uh, and I love to write about outsiders and underdogs. So both of my books grew out of stories of kind of rural people who were underestimated and... Um, because as you said, you you came out of Ohio, and were your parents factory workers, or your mom? You... My mom was a factory okay. worker. We were very poor. We lived in a little shotgunish house my grandmother owned. She lived next door, and she was really my saving grace. She was wonderful to me. My dad was a drunk, and um, you know, uh, uh, a, a sad, flawed person, um, as are we all at times. But um, so life, life was kind of hard, and I really felt like I was one of those people that got out at a time um, when uh, you could get a Pell Grant or need based financial aid, and it would pay your whole college if you were poor enough, which I was. And so I got to go to college basically for free with on Pell Grants and need based financial aid. And so I'm so grateful because it really did change my life that um, – I 
those are just the kinds of stories I'm attracted to. When somebody uh, who is underestimated, as I was often, um, puts in the work and comes out on top, I, I love that. Not that I've come out on top, for but sure, I've but done well, pretty well. Done real well. So you, you, for many years, then you wrote for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Now, we want to talk about your two books today. And how did you get into writing books from the newspaper articles? Mm-hmm. Well, I had written many, many articles, thousands of articles for the Roanoke Times. And I was, I think I was 49. I'm 52 now. And I was doing a series. I was just doing some preliminary reporting. I wanted to find out what happened to Martinsville and Henry County, which at the time had the highest unemployment rate for going on uh, uh, like 12 years at the time. And so I went down there with a photographer and we just started poking around, interviewing people. And I wanted to answer the question, what happens to a community when half of its jobs go away? And so I started poking around, interviewing people down there, noticing things like crime being up, drugs being up, especially drug-related crime, disability rates skyrocketing since uh, China joined the WTO in 2001, all those furniture factories closed, disability rates had gone up 64%. And so I started talking to the people that lost their jobs, and um, somebody else who's actually a neighbor of mine uh, runs a furniture store. He said, you know, there's a guy who kept his factory open. And that's always an interesting story. When everybody does one thing and somebody does something else and is successful, that's always a good story. So this guy was named John Bassett III. He was from the famous Bassett Furniture family. But even better uh, than he had uh, sued China in a court of international trade to keep his factory going uh, in Galax, Virginia, which... You don't expect that from a little town better known for bluegrass and barbecue. But also he was from this storied Bassett family and he had had a big split with them in the early 80s when he got so fed up with his older brother-in-law that he got in a fist fight and then moved to Galax to take over Von Bassett, which had been begun by his grandfather and his wife's grandfather in 1919. Um, so it just was this great Southern story. You've got the story of this family feud. You've got the story of kind of the industrial history of our nation. And, uh, you've got this great fighter story, uh, about a guy who sues China, you know, the People's Republic of China. He filed the now, largest... Now, Bassett of yeah. the famous... Bassett Furniture. Right. This is John Bassett the third, who was meant to inherit that company, but because of his fight, he then lands at Tiny Von Bassett, a privately held company, and it was that company that um, took on globalization. Not Bassett Furniture. Bassett closed most they of their closed, factories. They closed, and he just about he all of their factories. So, so how did he do this? Talk about, about mm-hmm. you know what he was up to and how did he mm-hmm. fight? Mm-hmm. He just he, he fights. Uh, I don't want to say down and dirty, but uh, nobody uh, works harder than John Bassett, and that's one of the things. I mean, he's he's not always a nice guy. I I have a real love hate with him, but I will concede that I have never known anyone in my life to work harder than him. And I don't mean he's in there sanding a dresser, but I mean he's thinking about that factory and how to keep it going night and day to the point of he wakes up at one in the morning and he thinks of an idea and he doesn't just jot it down on his legal pad by his bed. He calls the manager up in the middle of the night. And, uh, and when I asked him about that, I said, well, if I'm working, he should be working too. You know, uh, and he so, used to call you quite often, well, too, didn't he? Oh, quite often. He still and, calls every now and then. He wanted to give you input into the, oh, the book. input. Uh, he wanted to control the book. He wanted to tell right. me what to write, what not to write. But he saw that I'm my own person. And I think we've we've come to a place of 
mostly mutual respect. Well, I mean, he's still going to try to force his will on everything. Well, I love it. it. Pat Conroy's book, The Great Santini, comes to mind a little bit, and his yes. father, yes. Uh, who was a, a very dynamic authoritarian personality. Yeah. So, so, he, so did he win? Yeah, he won his case uh, okay. in 2005 and again at the Sunset Hearing in 2010. He just won again more recently, still proving that uh, certain Chinese factories are dumping product in our market, which is against the rules of the WTO. So uh, in the beginning, uh, for the first like seven years, uh, there was something called the Byrd Amendment that those duties that were collected from the people who were improperly dumping went back to the factories that were mm -hmm. still making furniture. Mm -hmm. But then politics came in and they got rid of that amendment. So now the money just goes to the U.S. Treasury. So they're still collecting duties that still uh, theoretically mm -hmm. has a... Um, an effect on, you know, if I'm going to get a duty, maybe I won't dump and it helps keep them um, competitive. But I mean, he's basically the only one left. Well, we're talking with Beth Macy today on Poets and Writers, and she's talking about two of her books, Factory Man, and then we're going to talk about True Vine. But Factory Man, of course, is fascinating to all of us with what's going on in, in this time in our lives and with work. Now, this was in Galax, or did he move out of Galax? No, he's still in Galax. So it's called Vaughn Bassett Furniture. It's yeah. uh, in the middle of Galax. You almost can't be anywhere in the downtown and not look up and see one of his smokestacks. So and you have the furniture there, and you have the Galax. Then you have the festival, and you have uh, Fiddler's Convention. You yeah. have Bluegrass and the whole mm -hmm. bit, and the radio show that comes out there that I listen to oh, sometimes, yeah. too. Yes. Yeah, and are you talking about the Mount Airy show? Well, yes. That's a great yeah, show. Yeah. W-A-M-R, I well, think. For sure. Yeah. And if you pass down 77, you can hear it. So, all right, Factory Man, we talked about that. You talked about his relatives and a number of other things before, but I want to go on to True Vine. Mm -hmm. And then you, told, you indicated you were working on another book mm -hmm. on drugs, right? So we <laughs> yeah, can, there's can, my, uh, my, my wall of interviews. Well, we need to talk about that, too, because certainly in the news, but talk about True Vine. Sure. True Vine also grew out of a, a newspaper piece I had written in 2001, and actually had tried to do the story in the early 90s when I first came to Roanoke. A photographer had said, told me the story of George and Willie Mews, two African-American brothers with albinism who were kidnapped around the turn of the last century and sold to the circus. Uh, they sold to a carnival and who then sold them on to a circus, who then sold them on to another circus. They were basically bartered like chattel and were never paid for 13 years. And uh, they were told their mother was dead and they should quit crying. And lo and behold, their mother was very much not dead. And not only that, uh, she found out they were with Ringling Brothers in 1927 and she got them back. And so the, she's really the hero of that story. Um, and it took me many years to get it because the family really didn't trust the media because the media had treated them so terribly. Will you talk about, you went to the restaurant. Did they have a restaurant or they had a The brother's niece, uh, uh, their great niece, a woman named Nancy Saunders. And I first went into, the goodie shop was a little soul food restaurant that she owned in the early 90s because the photographer that told me about the story and said it was the best story in town, but nobody had been able to get it, uh, said the reason nobody had been able to get it is because Nancy wouldn't let anybody interview her Uncle Willie, who was the, the sole living brother. Uh, he lived to be 108. He died in 2001. I never got to meet him because she said, he's resting. 
he has been exploited his whole life and we're not going to bother him now. But when he passes away, I'll let you do the piece. And she did. She didn't tell us a lot, though, and she really didn't know that much because most of it had happened well before she was born and her mother had passed away. And, um, uh, you know, she just didn't have that many um, documents or anything like that. So it was quite a... Uh, just a deep dive into the world of Jim Crow, uh, Virginia and race relations. Also the American circus, which was the biggest form of entertainment between 1840 and 1940. Uh, and a time when we didn't respect, uh, we didn't respect minority rights. We didn't respect child labor law, uh, rights. We didn't respect disability. So there was this strange thing called the sideshow. It would be a side tent set up next to the big top where people would pay an extra quarter to go in and um, look at the freaks. Or the so these two young them. men, you say they were kidnapped or taken away from them? And and put into the sideshow because of, they were albinos and they were dressed in kind of outlandish costumes and their promoters gave them kind of names that evoked uh, wild savages. They were the Ecuadorian cannibals, the sheep-headed monsters. Um, their most famous names were they were Eco and Ico, ambassadors from Mars. And um, so they would spin these great wild stories about all of the acts and then to in order to get that extra ding out of the patron to go sure. into the show and then they would perform they would well how long on. did how long were they in with the circus they were with the circus um well so they were 13 years um oh. when they were not being paid and then when their mother got them back she filed a lawsuit against ringling brothers won a settlement and then uh then they chose to go back uh the next year uh ostensibly they were going to be paid but often they weren't and so the mother had to get involved then anyways once the mother uh did uh, get justice for them which took over a decade, um, they then performed in the circus until the early 60s. So the career was almost 50 years. So they did get their pay, though. They did. They did eventually. eventually. I mean, it's hard to say how much they would have exactly. made had they been getting paid all along. For sure. But um, by the time they retired in 1961, uh, the money that had been sent home for them uh, enabled the family to buy a nice home. And um, they were well taken care of by the women in their family, including Nancy, who is the, the main contemporary character, who told me to get lost the first time I went into I the love goodie it. shop. I love it. She yeah. pointed to a sign on the wall that a customer had made for her that captured the essence of Nancy, and the sign said, sit down and shut up. That was when you went in. That's what she yeah. told Because she yeah. did not want you to write a book. Uh, really didn't want to talk to you, isn't that correct? That's right. And then I stuck around, which I tend to do. Sure. Uh, I was, you know, I was like, why won't you? I'm a nice person. I'll do a good job. And um, I just was persistent and kept going back, kept eating there. I eventually got her to let me write a little food story about a restaurant. Thought she'd love it. I went back and she said, you know what your story did? It brought out a bunch of crazy white people that's all so we had a lot of years of getting to know each and other and she called you scoop one time she calls me scoop when she feels i've missed a big point in the story and so she would tease us after our newspaper story ran in 01 i would go I back it. because i love to go eat there and right. i really love her i would love right. to go hang out with her and she'd say you missed one scoop and she wouldn't tell me what it was for years and it turned out like 
an important character in the book had actually sure. been murdered the year after Harriet got the sons back. And so she helped me find that eventually. But uh, she was sort of like loving the fact that I missed it the first time. Around. And after she put up uh, some roadblocks, so didn't she get with it? I mean, she never really endorsed the book, but you saw her writing and signing copies of it. Is that right? Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, she let yeah, me do, do it. it. I yeah. asked her in 2011, yeah. or no, 13, right before Factory Man came out, if I could turn the stories into a book. And I knew I'd have to do a lot more research. And um, she had to check with her family. She made me wait six weeks before she sure. gave me an answer. And then she called me on Christmas morning and said, I've waited so I could give it to you as a gift. Um, so she did let me do How it. Nice. How nice. That, and that's True Vine. We've talked about Factory Man and True Vine. You're are you on book tour now with True Vine? Is that I know you were in Kind of winding down. Kind of, I mean, I've got down. an event tomorrow in Christiansburg. I've so. got one or two things a week. I've tried to only do things at night and weekends. A uh, little bit more travel, but but not a lot. Uh, I really need to finish this book. I'm I'm only about a quarter of the way into my next book. Well, you folks out there listening today, if you get a chance to hear Beth. Macy, or see her do a presentation. She's really good. Thanks, And she's got a lot of feedback around Abingdon. I had a lady come up to me on the Creeper Trail, actually Bunny Madeiras, and said, wow, we've had some good people there, but Beth was the best. Oh, that is so nice. I loved Abingdon. That library is so special, and all those people that came out, and they were, they had read my column. I used to write a column for the Roanoke Times, and they were kind of quoting from it. It just really made my day. It was special. All right, let's talk a little bit about the book you're working on now. Uh-huh. Yeah, they gave me lots of tips for that book, too. Okay. Because, you know, the book is about the heroin epidemic. It's called Dope Sick, which is... The, the title of it is... Dope Sick. It's dope the working sick. title. Absolutely. I don't know if it's actually going to be the title. Okay. But, you know, what Dope Sick is, it's when when opioid addicts, um, when the buzz wears off, they get very, very sick if they don't get more uh, opioids in their system. And that is what makes it such a hard thing for people to give up and so likely to relapse. And it really is what's driving this. And so um, so I'm taking the story, uh, it's going to be set in three different locales in Virginia, and I'm taking it back to the beginning, which is... Uh, Oxycontin in the coal fields, and that's why I loved being in Abingdon because I had like eight people hand me their names and phone numbers and said they had stories to share with uh, that related to just how these drugs have have overtaken Appalachia. And um, so, I mean, I interviewed a couple people this week that I met in Abingdon, so it was really helpful. But so I, I'm making the nexus, I'm making the connection mm-hmm. between the opioid pills and heroin because it's basically. Oxycontin was heroin in a pill, really. And so when the pills got harder to get, when they finally reformulated it in 2010 and cracked down on pill mill doctors, uh, well, the drug cult- cartels, right. being business people and astute, they brought in heroin for cheap, 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 cheap. And so a lot of the pill people went to heroin. Well, now, Southwest Virginia is an area... And you know we we hear we hear the term epidemic. Do you think that's a, a fair characterization? It's epidemic. Uh, absolutely, I do. Yeah, I really do, because uh, just the nature of it. Um, I, I described in the beginning a uh, part of the almost exponential nature of opioid addiction is that once somebody becomes addicted, they'll do anything to keep their supply coming. Um, and a lot of them become users slash low-level dealers. And in order to get their own uh, fix, they'll recruit new customers. And 
and and just it's it's such an intractable problem. When I I want to talk about the relationship between jobs and drug addiction and this aspect of people out of work. Mm-hmm. Do you see a definite parallel with that as people lost their jobs, they fell into this? or I, I do see that. Um, d- down in Bassett and Henry County, you know, factory man land, um, police told me that 80% of their crime is related to meth and heroin. Um, and, you know, I did a piece on Suboxone, which is medication-assisted treatment. It's a treatment for opioid addiction out of Lebanon, Virginia, uh, for the New York Times in May, and uh, the I, cops are really Oh, you struggling. did that one on Lebanon for the New York Times in May. Yes, I, yeah. I read that. Okay, for great, sure. great, great. Yeah, and, pointed and, out, passed it around. Yes. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, that was me, and um, so they're really fighting now. Instead of fighting the Oxycontin pill mills, they're fighting uh, doctors who inappropriately prescribe Suboxone, and it's become sort of the new black market drug. And uh, public health people will tell you, well, it's the best chance for getting off of it, but um, the law enforcement have a lot of problems with it. Well, we've been talking, we've been talking with Beth, Beth Macy today, and I'm sure I got your name right. One time I had someone on this show, and I mispronounced <laughs> her name the whole entire time. Oh, they no. told me at the end. Oh, that was, was a it, nice it, person. Yeah, we, we, Too we, nice. We had a good time. It was fun. But, Beth, in closing on a positive note, what's some of the... What's, uh, I want to ask you, what's your favorite book you've written? Which of the three that you're working on or uh, the favorite thing that comes to mind that you've written? Norm- I- yeah, normally I just love whatever I'm working okay. on, but this new book is so dark you, that you- I'm really struggling with it. I mean, to be honest, I interviewed somebody yesterday who was a, she could have been a comedian. She turns out to be an epidemiologist who first studied Oxycontin hitting the coal fields. And I said, oh, I'm going to call you every week just because you're making me laugh. It's a, it's a dark topic. But, yeah. um, well, no, I a... love both of the books. I really, yeah. I, I, I love the endings especially because I think they capture the essence of, of the people. I love the people I wrote about. Okay. Even John Bassett is crazy as he but, drives me. I love yeah. him. But you have that reporter energy and passion, so you like all of your books, of course. And we don't have time on the show today to talk about your favorite writers, So, but I know you have many. And, and <laughs> well, Lee is one and, of them. Yeah. And, and uh, Cairo, do you pronounce it say, Robert uh, Caro, Robert Caro, Caro, yeah, he was—he's the one who did those Lyndon uh, Johnson. Yes, yes, I've uh, read those. I love it. Been yeah. out to the ranch, been to Lyndon Johnson's little house oh there, where he used to get under the the living room and listen to his dad talk politics and everything with oh. the politicians and how he brought electricity to him and so on. Yes, Lyndon Johnson, rest his soul. With a lot of stories about that. Well, yeah. I want to have time a little bit on this show today to play a little bit of music. We have a great producer, Richard Graves, and so. If I don't cut it too close, I get to put in a little song or two. And I can think of so many songs in talking with you today. Any closing comments on Poets and Writers? This is Henry McCarthy. No, what a service you're doing, Henry. I just, I love the idea of it. You're traveling around. I got a pie in the oven for us afterwards. So, uh, no, this is great fun. And I've actually got a song to recommend. Okay, great. All right, folks, thanks for listening. This is Henry McCarthy of Poets and Writers saying, Don't wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. And thank you, Beth Macy, for being on today. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I woke up Wednesday morning in my little motel bed Knowing I would die the minute that I moved my head I felt around to make sure I was in my bed alone I meet some friendly people when I'm stoned Our payday was on Friday, I had two whole days to go 
my agony, I knew that I was broke. Let me pay the check, I said, and keep the change, my friend. She wiggled out of sight with my last ten. At noon, I realized there wasn't any way to eat. For lunch, I just went out and shuffled up and down the street. At four o'clock, I had a funny feeling in my chest. How long did it take to starve a man to death? I found some pennies in my junk and bought a candy bar. Divided it in pieces and I ate one every hour. I just rolled into town and didn't know a single soul. There wasn't any way to make a loan. Thursday morning I was nearly panicked on the job I heard my stomach growling and my head begin to drop I contemplated murder of the folks that brought their lunch The sudden smell of food would make me jump Thursday night they ran all food commercials on TV I slept till nine or ten and then I walked the floor to breathe Friday morning I looked for some ketchup on my shirt My mind was gone, my legs began to hurt The last few minutes up to paying time were all the worst The minutes were the years it took to build the universe Finally it came, I got my check and made a dash Yes, I said the man will eat it last Running down the sidewalk I could see the sign was flashing on and off, eat, eat, eat. I have a pound of ground round, ma'am, and please don't look long. The sizzle of the grill was like a song. I travel this world over and I ain't been hungry much. I've been down in my thinking and I've been down on my luck. But the sweetest meal I've ever had in anybody's town was a half a pound of plain brown round.